Welcome, everyone, to episode 15 of the USC Honesty Hour podcast. Um, We're a podcast that is here to dive into the importance of mental health and facilitate honest conversations about it. Our mission is to highlight having a healthy mind and also to make the uncomfortable conversations comfortable. And we want to foster an environment at USC that destigmatizes mental health as well as encourage others to reach out for help. I'm James Lai. And I am Bianni Sabio, and we are your new host for this year. I'm a freshman studying business administration at USC, and throughout my high school career, I've always been actively finding ways to develop my physical and mental health, whether that's through self-care or regular exercise, which is really what drew me to uh, joining this podcast team. And I am a current sophomore here at USC studying business of cinematic arts. And just like every other student and basically everyone in the world, I've always tried to discover new ways to approach dealing with mental health in order to benefit myself as well as the world around me. And this is an awesome opportunity to do that. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Michelle Dexter. She is a licensed clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. Hello, Dr. Dexter. Um, how are you doing today? So great to meet you. I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be with you this hour. Thank you. So we just want to start off by asking if you could just share a little bit about yourself and what you do here at USC as a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Sure. Um, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and so um, I am the youngest of four, and so I always was really interested in science and research and learning and just being able to support others. So during my like younger years and teenage years, I wasn't sure what that would look like. I, I didn't know if you know, even in college, if I wanted to get an MD or an MD PhD, or maybe even both. And I ended up moving to California to do a master's in physiology and human biophysics at USC. And uh, after that, I was hired to really coordinate this um, research study. And I met a clinical psychologist um, at that time. And that was something that combined everything that was really interesting interesting to me, um, this ability to support individuals, the ability to teach, and then the ability to really do research and study what we're doing and and always just really improve that in service of, of better um, care. And so in my role in the department, I am just really lucky to work in a department that has all of those aspects that were important to me since I was really young. So I provide clinical services via individual therapy and group therapy. Um, I'm engaged in research. We're working on a project right now um, looking at decreasing mental health disparities. And then I also teach through um, our new course, the PBHS 499 Roadmap to Resilience. And I just get, really get to do what I'm passionate about. I get to work with a degree diverse group of individuals who just inspire me and um, really get to support and connect with the community that I care about. So um, 
our department is actually pretty big. We have more than 300 clinical faculty, researchers, residents, fellows, trainees, and we provide a wide range of service. And it's just, I think, really, you know, feels like such a, a nice place to work, a really value-driven commitment to have this excellence in clinical care, education, and research, and just work with such a diverse faculty who provide world-class mental health services. Well, that's absolutely amazing to have someone so passionate about mental health here at USC helping us. Um, I don't know, James, do you have anything to share? Yeah, I think it was really interesting hearing about how I feel like uh, from what you said, like caring for others have always has always been in your DNA. And, uh, you know, just jumping off of one thing and going here, studying here, and then finally finding, uh, I'm sure, where you feel you, you know, really belong and really where you find your, uh, your, your calling to serve these students. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that's true for so many of us. I think when we're younger, we think that there's this linear path. Um, and I think for um, so many of us, um, there's actually a series that we um, do for um, first year students, really just talking to professionals in their industry. And most of us have a path that isn't so linear or planned. And also, it's really lovely where we end up and, and where we are. So I think that's something I always like to bring into my conversations, um, because sometimes you know, as students, we think like we should be doing certain things or um, have certain things fall into place. And sometimes our path might not be exactly linear, but maybe it's exactly the way it's supposed to be. Absolutely. Um, just to jump off that, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the new Roadmap to Resilience course? How did it come about and how does the course benefit students? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm so excited to talk about this. I could talk about this all day. This is such a passion of mine. Um, and the course really came about, you know, our department continues to just allocate strong efforts and support initiatives behind engaging our student community. Um, I first started working with college students in around 2010. And from 2010 to 2022, really the mental health needs of the students on campus have, have really increased across the country. Um, and our department really takes a strong emphasis on mental health and student well-being. And I um, am really always interested in program development. I've developed a number of different programs for our department in the past. And how I always start is really assessing the needs of our community and then really trying to match that with a really effective um, solution or intervention. So I think they probably weren't surprised when I um, shared this idea. Um, and the department is always um, really supportive um, and supported, um, you know, the, the development of um, this process and our academic prefix. Um, I can't take credit for the general idea of teaching these types of concepts in a class. So um, the class is really based off um, an incredibly effective set of skills and tools taught in individual therapy. And a few years ago, my colleagues actually published a manual on how to teach this to high school students um, that any like teacher uh, could teach this to high school students. 
And since then, it's been offered um, in the past few semesters at universities. And so I was really excited that my department was supporting me in, in being able to offer this for U.S. students, USC students here in 2022. Um, and so I've taught these skills for more than 10 years in all different types of settings. And I feel really lucky that I'm able to teach them here at USC now for students. Um, so that's kind of how it came to be. What the course is, um, it's called PBHS 499 Roadmap to Resilience. We actually still have some openings in spring of 2023. Um, and it's, you know, as you all shared in your introductions, um, college can be an exciting and stressful time. And students with various intersecting identities and backgrounds are really navigating this novel system. And, you know, typically that comes with a lot of um, freedom and excitement, but also it can come with some challenges. So when we think about resilience, it's really this ability to positively adapt in the face of challenge. Um, and so the course teaches students just that. So undergraduate students learn how to have resilience in the face of commonly experienced stressors. And when we say commonly experienced stressors, we mean things like all of us probably have experienced or will experience in college, like um, conflict with a friend or um, difficulty in a class or a looming assignment, some type of um, discomfort with emotions, something like that. What we're not conveying um, is that all of us experience the same level of stress, regardless of identity factors or lived experience. Um, we know that discrimination and harassment are things that we need to continue to dismantle and eradicate. And so we're not teaching, you know, students about, um, you know, making that type of stress different for them in their life. We're teaching really about how to respond to these other type of stressors that are more commonly experienced and research actually shows that individuals who use resilient strategies, these types of um, mindfulness, emotion regulation, tolerating distress, communication strategies, um, research shows that individuals who develop and use those type of research res resilience strategies are more likely to be effective both in college and beyond. Um, so although the class is focused on, on learning these skills, um, in this way. It's not meant to be a type of therapy at all. It's just really skills for all of us at any time. I use these skills every day. I teach them to my little kids. Um, and so they're really skills for all of us um, at any time. Well, and I then, think... Oh, sorry. I was going to say the final piece I think you said was what do I hope to accomplish? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think my hope in teaching this is that our community is, you know, more resilient, less judgmental, and more equipped to really do the work we want to do in this world, like be the change makers we want to be, uh, while letting this stress kind of fade, um, as it can. And my hope is that our class is one piece of the solution. I know the Odyssey Hour is another piece of the solution, and, and we can all contribute to the solution in different ways. I feel really confident that this will be helpful to students, not only because there's a mountain of research saying so, um, but because in my 10 years, that's what I've seen. And even the students that I'm teaching now, um, you know, I can share a few quotes. One student said, 
from taking the seminar, I'm taking away that although I don't have control over what emotions I experience, I can control my choice. Um, and another student said, feeling emotions isn't dangerous. It's not something to be ashamed of. And it's a much it's much better to just feel my emotions than to suppress them and try to make them go away. So I'm really excited just to to be part of this, you know, continued solution in this way of, of helping students manage their stress. Well, I think that everything you've just said was absolutely amazing, um, especially in context of being a student here at USC. You know, I feel like a lot of people don't understand that mental health is something that affects all different types of genders, races, sexualities, religions. Like, it's something that is a, really a human struggle, um, but a lot of people tend to ignore it, especially students that are so used to being in a competitive environment. Like here at USC, so many people are constantly struggle, I, struggling. I know I'm constantly struggling, but no one has, I wouldn't say has the confidence to talk about it, but no one is aware that like everyone goes through it as well and that they should be talking about it. So I feel like having a course here at USC um, it's something that I should take. It's something that everyone should take, hopefully as soon as possible. And very grateful that you are here teaching such an amazing skill set for these students. Thank you for saying that. And, you, and you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the the tricky part is because we're new, you know, students might not know how to find us yet, but we do hope that, you know, it could be a general education course in the future, that more students just get the opportunity to, to try it. Um, and, and you're right, like we all struggle in different ways. And so it's just, you know, there's common humanity in that. And, and it's something that we all experience differently, but we all, we all experience struggle. Right, absolutely. And I think that reminds me of this like other quote that I think I heard a couple of weeks ago. And that is that your challenges don't become easier, you just become better. So I think that's mm. one thing that many people need to acknowledge. It's really, you know, oftentimes we can't change what does happen to us, but we can change how we, like you said, respond to stressors, uh, cope with stressors. So I think that's something that students can really benefit from. Absolutely. And, and I feel really like hopeful and optimistic about that. And I've also seen it. So it's, I think it's also like really practical too. Um, and I think there's something really um, powerful about that. It's just we're so remarkably resilient as humans. I'm not like conveying that we should have more stressors on our plate, but I am conveying that we are so remarkably resilient. And if we could connect with the um, appropriate resources or use the appropriate skills and to get through stressors, yeah, a lot of times we, we are then better able to navigate future challenges. Awesome. Going off of that, I wanted to ask, what are some simple ways for college students or just people in general to manage their stress? Yeah, really great question. Um, I have so many thoughts on this, but I'm going to try to distill it down to just a few. Um, one is about knowledge and the other is about connection, because I think both of those things are really essential. Um, I think First, knowledge is so powerful, um, and really, the more we know about our internal world, the less confusing it becomes. 
Um, and so one of the things we actually teach in the course is a model of emotions and a model for um, actually ways to respond to any problem. For most of us, like when we have a stressor, we kind of go into this kind of autopilot of, of how to respond to it. And so what I really encourage people to do is slow down. Like, can we really slow down and maybe get curious about what is showing up? And then we're much more likely to respond in a way that's helpful for us versus just reacting in a way that's just in line with maybe an emotional response or a habitual response. Um, one of the things we actually teach is that there's four ways to solve any problem. Um, one is to actually solve the problem. And sometimes we have the ability to do that, but sometimes we don't. So that gives us choices two and three, which is to feel better about the problem or to just tolerate or accept the problem. The fourth way, which we've all done, including me, um, is to do nothing or to make it worse. Um, and some of the time when we just kind of react to our stressors, for example, let's say we have like um, a huge assignment due. And for most of us, when we have something really big and challenging, our initial urge is to just avoid it. Um, but that avoidance actually gives us less time to do a complicated task. So, you know, we've all had experience in, in probably doing all four of those, um, but really um, to be able to understand like, oh, we can actually slow this down. And that emotions, even going back to my master's in biophysics, a full body response. It's a biochemical response. In that response, there's actually moments of choice as well. And so I think, you know, once we can learn those and really slow down, there is a sense of um, more agency. There is a sense of more resiliency. And one of the things that's most important, I think, is even knowing, you know, the arc of an emotion, how long it would last. Do you all mind taking like a brief, a brief quiz? Do you mind taking a brief quiz together? Sure, of course, of okay. course. Okay, so this is one of the things I think is really interesting if we think about it. So so one of the things that when we're teaching a model of emotions is we teach you know the science around the you know arc of an emotional response. And I always ask students, how long do you think emotions last? Is it, um, you know, 60, is it 60 to 90 seconds, 60 to 90 minutes? 60 to 90 hours or 60 to 90 years. So A is 60 to 90 seconds, B is 60 to 90 minutes, C is 60 to 90 hours, and D is 60 to 90 years. And you can answer or, or you can phone a friend, and I'm happy to be the friend if you want to phone a friend and not answer. Hmm. I would love to take a shot at this. I feel like that's I feel like it's a trick question because I feel like it totally depends on what you do about the situation. Yes, you're exactly right. Oh, awesome. Okay. So, <laughs> you can go into your weekend just knowing that you have 100% on this quiz today. <laughs> you're exactly right. So, if we think about and we can actually use a different emotion to think about this, right? If you think about like the last time that you felt really happy, right? Can, if you can remember that time, did you ever have the thought running through your mind in that moment when you were feeling really happy? Oh my gosh, what if I'm happy forever? What if this happiness just lasts forever? 
Most of us don't. No, most of us don't because our happiness typically just comes and goes. This is the example of an emotional cascade that we don't interfere with. And it comes and goes in that kind of 60 to 90, 30 to 90 second range, right? When we don't interfere with our emotional response, it typically just comes and goes. But you're right. When we act on it, which can be like in a cognitive way, which can be in a behavioral way, when we kind of act, our emotions love themselves that, you know, when we're sad, we want to listen to sad songs and stay home, right? When we're scared, we want to like kind of avoid the things we're fearing. So once we can understand this emotional response and how to get unstuck from it, I think we have so much more agency and we're better able to respond to our stressors because we just have more clarity on like, oh yeah, this is the situation. This is what's going into it. These are my choices. The second thing that's really important about that um, is connection. So most of us are much more effective at dealing with our stressors when we're not isolated. Um, And sometimes we judge ourselves about our reactions or having certain experiences or experiencing certain phenomena. Um, But research really shows that we're much more likely to be effective um, and navigating stressors and, and maintaining our own well-being if we are connected to others. Um, and so that's one of the things I always like to remind people of, whether it's a friend or a mental health professional or, you know, an advisor. I think one really effective way of navigating stressors is, is through connection, too. So I think by understanding our choices and, and by connection, those are the two big ones that I would say. Uh, I totally, I can understand exactly what you mean. Easier said than done, but I feel like I personally, um, whenever I've been at my lowest, it's when I've isolated myself and kind of ignored the situation. Like the other week I had a paper due and I just could not write it because the whole week I was stressed. And on that final day, I asked my professor if I could have one day break and he said, okay. And I didn't, I didn't realize that it was that easy if I just took a break and listened to my emotions that I'd get the paper done by the next day it was in. And so, I don't know, I just feel like that advice is very, very helpful for a lot of students who don't realize or who have kind of this awful conception about independence. They think that in order to be a strong competitive leader, you have to be not dependent on anyone. But I feel like most of my skills and leadership skills have been dependent on just forming good friendships and connections, being open about my emotions, open about my, like literally anything, anything that I think about throughout my common day. And I just know at the end of the day, even if I've had a good day or a bad bad day, whenever I see my friends and we just debrief about our days and have that conversation, I feel so much better. So I feel like your advice has been literally, um, has really applied to my life. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that example. I think these types of examples are so powerful, you know, um, and for students to hear from each other, I think is so powerful. I can share these ideas, but for students to really share these stories with each other, it's so powerful because that's that common humanity of like, oh yeah, me too. I also experience a struggle. Oh yeah, me too. I can also feel stuck and I can also get unstuck. Right. And I think to that point, it's also something I found really interesting is that idea of collective struggle and 
how that makes you feel. I think that really feels much, it's much more, it's much easier to cope with that than to cope with anything individually. Like for example, for our uh, team project, for one of my uh, business classes, we had this big final coming up and it can often feel very, um, you can really feel stuck when we're trying to study for something that's so big and can mean so much to you, at least academically. But when you really face everything together, you come into groups to talk about things. Um, I think that really makes that process a lot more enjoyable despite the circumstances. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, um, that's, I think that's really like the joy I get out of this um, teaching this material to students is it is so generalizable. It's like, oh yeah, we've all had these moments of being stuck and we can all benefit from learning just different ways of getting unstuck. Mm -hmm. All right. And just to bounce off that idea, what are some of the most um, common mental health challenges you've seen uh, in your clinical career and how can we best tackle them? Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, our challenges are impacted by our environment and our context. And I think it's, you know, we've, there are some real challenges right now that are impacting mental health. Um, we all just experienced a global pandemic for the first time in most of our lives. Um, and this wasn't experienced the same way by all populations. And in addition, you know, although climate change and um, inequities based on race, gender, socioeconomic status, and other factors have really been prevalent in our world for some time, um, these factors always are harmful and have a negative impact on our population. So, you know, there are some real factors in our environment that are impacting um, mental health in very understandable ways. And two of really the most common, you know, in, in regards to mental health, two of the most common mental health challenges are anxiety and depression. Um, and really, um, as an expert um, in anxiety disorders, one of the things I try to really look at is, um, you know, the, a model of anxiety and, and how we're um, approaching, um, supporting individuals and, and kind of like tolerating and decreasing distress related to anxiety. And a model that we like to think about, um, is, um, something called a risk resource model. Um, and so the risk, you know, is really kind of looking at the, not only like the actual risk, but our perception of the risk in our environment. And then the resources, like looking at these, these real factors um, that can be helpful for us, including our own resiliency, like we were talking about um, at the beginning, right? Like actually navigating these challenges can help us feel more confident um, in the future. Um, and so interestingly enough, you know, research shows that the most effective way to change an emotional response is by doing something that's opposite of the action urge with the emotion. So if you can guess, right, for anxiety, the, the initial urges, and this is something we actually teach in the course too, it's called opposite action. And so the for anxiety, the kind of action urges are to fight, flight, or flee, right? Fight, flight, or freeze. Those are the three um, really related to a sympathetic nervous system response. 
And so opposite action um, we use when the maybe the emotion doesn't fit the facts. If the emotion does fit the facts, if you are actually in danger, don't use any of the skills, get out of there and get to safety. Like that is essential to always ensure your safety. But if maybe the emotion doesn't fit the facts, let's say like you're giving a presentation and your anxiety is really high, um, then maybe this is a, a good moment to use opposite action or, or potentially even consider it, right? Um, maybe thinking about that big project, your anxiety is really high and the action urge is to totally avoid it. Maybe that might be a good moment for opposite action, right? Maybe you have some peers um, that like you want to walk to the dining hall with, but it would it might feel a little bit uncomfortable to ask them. Maybe that's a good moment to practice opposite action, right? So by doing this, what we actually do is we allow our brain to learn that our perception of the situation wasn't really in line with the, the danger. And so we really learn there's a difference between being uncomfortable and, and feeling scared and actually being in danger. Um, and so that's one of the things that, um, you know, I'm always really mindful of, of, of kind of thinking about opposite action and, and when, you know, everyone is an expert in their own world in their own life and their own lived experiences. So I can just say like, you know, this is something that may or may not be helpful. And then everyone can really decide, yeah, this is a good time for me to practice it. Or no, this isn't a good time for me to practice it. Um, I, I, I actually have never heard of just taking action or like an opposite action when you feel anxious or depressed. I think that that's very interesting. But at the same time, even though I've, I haven't heard of it, I feel like I have taken those steps in my life previously. Um, if you don't know, I actually, English was about my fourth language, learned it very late, but I developed a huge stutter because of it. And so just talking in public, making friends, anything that involved me trying to connect with someone else that wasn't from my culture was a huge stressor. And um, I was able to actually start theater in sixth grade because you know, it was really getting in the way of my life. And I just wanted to do something in order to put myself out there and build that confidence that I didn't have. And I honestly just changed my life. Now I feel like, you know, now I'm here, like hosting a podcast, and I'm always the first to initiate conversations and things like that. So I don't know, I, I feel like that is something that people need to start doing, because I can't imagine my life if I hadn't started theater and hadn't practice speaking in front of crowds of hundreds instead of just one person, you know, just pushing yourself out there and doing what you think is the unimaginable, you know, it, it does change your life. So thank you so much for stating that. Well, and thank you for trying it and, and using your own wisdom too, right? It's like you knew your own risk, you knew your own resources and knew you knew your willingness to try it. And for each of us, maybe that's different. And so maybe that skill will come at a different time for each of us. But yeah, I mean, I, I think your example is so like such an excellent um, way of, of kind of of, a, of really kind of showing that we can learn so much if we kind of just try, try something and maybe extend a little bit into our, uh, you know, discomfort zone. Right. And I, I think I have also some personal experience with this. And I think Sometimes it's about trying different things, but also finding what you do enjoy doing, but also, you know, what you don't enjoy so much doing. So um, 
growing up, I did a lot of, uh, uh, I guess in kindergarten, did a lot of like um, storytelling. And I've always been all right at it, but especially in elementary and middle school, I've always felt myself uh, as, as more isolated, uh, at least with the general public. But um, starting in middle school, I started to doing a lot more Model UN and debating, which I have to say I don't enjoy the most doing. But it's also through that experience, um, I started becoming more um, in closer contact with the people organizing the conferences. And I found, you know, my calling and, and what I truly enjoy is really organizing these events as to the kind of debating, more outward public speaking aspect of it. So I think it's really important to try different things and, you know, find what you enjoy and perhaps don't enjoy doing as much. Yes, I think that's so essential. Like our own values have to be our compass, right? And and really kind of determining um, our pace and our direction. I think that's really important. Yeah, of course. Uh, so just kind of going on about stigmas, uh, obviously the world has come a long way from destigmatizing mental health issues, but there's still a lot of conversations that need to be had. Uh, so I just wanted to ask, what stigmas do you see today and how do you think we could best work towards doing away with them? I think we um, kind of referenced this a little bit, but I think there still is stigma around like wanting to reach out and wanting to get support. Um, I agree with you that, you know, we have done a lot and also we need to keep going and, and kind of keep decreasing these stigmas. And this requires a multifaceted approach, just like anything else. Um, you know, our department tries to do this through a number of different ways. We do a lot of kind of outreach and, and training. Um, and the honesty hour is, is one way, right? Like by having these honest conversations and just kind of talking about this, normalizing stress, normalizing, reaching out for support. I think that's absolutely a way of, of kind of continuing to destigmatize um, factors related to mental health. Um, another thing that I think continues to contribute to stigma is that I think uh, we could do a, a better job as a community of, of decreasing community as in like collective, even broader than USC. Um, it's really decreasing judgmental language. So judgments are really a way that we actually like maintain stigmas and they're sneaky. You know, judgments are like these fast hand way of communicating, but what it really is, it's, it's like a fact and an opinion and a and an evaluation kind of all packaged in, right? Um, and we know that there's two types of judgment. There's like a discriminatory judgment where we're saying, is it this or is it that? And then there's an evaluatory judgment when we're saying, yeah, we're evaluating it as good or bad. Discriminatory, it's like, is it north or south? Is this chicken or fish, right? These are helpful for us because it allows us to kind of decide, you know, um, something ab about, uh, make a kind of conclusive decision. Evaluatory judgments are really the ones that can negatively impact our mood. It actually, like, um, you know, really decreases um, the strength of relationships and can increase distance. 
Um, whether it's, you know, you judging someone else, right. That can maybe increase the distance between you and that person, decrease curiosity. And if it's you and yourself, you're much less likely to be connected to yourself and really be curious about your experience, be open about your experience. Um, And this is one of the first components that we teach about in the Roadmap to Resilience course is about non-judgmental language and the impact of judgmental language and the impact of judgments. It's so fast for all of us. Judging is normal. We all do it. And also we can really decrease stigmas towards ourselves, towards others, if we can just break down this language and like a really simple benign example, but that's really true to my heart. So stick with me here. Is this, you know, I might say like chocolate ice cream is good. Vanilla ice cream is bad, right? You can't convince me to like vanilla ice cream over chocolate ice cream, but I can use non-judgmental language, right? I can say something like, um, there's multiple flavors of ice cream. I notice that when I eat chocolate ice cream, I feel really satiated and happy. And when I eat vanilla ice cream, it doesn't do the same thing for me. And so I prefer chocolate ice cream, right? That's different than saying chocolate is good, vanilla is bad. And regarding mental health stigmas, right? It might be something like, um, you know, you mentioned previous terms instead of using some stigma like crazy or, you know, some type of really stigmatizing term terms might be unpacking that and then really figuring out, okay, what are the facts? What are the opinions? And then are there any evaluations in there? And maybe instead of like, ugh, that's crazy or, you know, something like that, maybe it's something much more gentle of like, it makes me really uncomfortable when I witness someone struggling and I don't know what to do. Right. Think how much closer we are able to connect if we use non-judgmental language And that's something that I hope we can continue to dismantle as a community um, in in so many different ways. Go ahead, James. Uh, I I was going to ask, do you think objectively labeling emotions is also something that is useful? For example, let's say we're in a conversation and someone is visibly uncomfortable instead of using terms like crazy or whatever, perhaps we can say, you seem, you seem very uncomfortable. Is there something I can do to help you? How do you think that might help with, you know, building that stronger connection and helping us like also on a kind of macro level, destigmatize, destigmatize some of these mental health uh, conditions that we see in the world today? That's such an excellent question because we are social beings. We really want to connect with others and we have these mirror neurons, right? When we see someone else responding in a way, our brain actually lights up in response to that. And so here's what I would say about labeling emotions. I think actually labeling emotions is really effective for us, right? And we can be curious about like, hmm, something just, we didn't actually notice them having an emotion. We noticed maybe a change in their facial expression. And so when we teach about um, judgmental language and, and our it's in the mindfulness unit because we ask people to really observe and describe, our brain fills in the gaps so quickly. Our brains are so fast. So we see something and we fill in the gaps, whether it's with others or ourselves, and like, for example, if I say hi to a colleague in the hallway and she might not say hi to me, I might have the thought like, oh, she's mad at me or I see her. I see that she's angry. Right. 
Well, I just really saw her eyes look down and I didn't hear her say anything. But our brains fill in the gaps so quickly. So really um, practicing this non-judgmental language um, is really helpful of like, I noticed like a shift. I noticed a shift or I noticed a reaction. I'm curious if, you know, I could just check in what's going on for you, right? Because we don't actually know. But for us, yes, labeling the emotion actually can even decrease the activation of our amygdala and increase the activity of our prefrontal cortex. So even like, and we don't even have to do it out loud, right? We could just say like, yeah, I'm noticing feeling really like nervous in this moment. I'm noticing feeling like really sad in this moment. Um, And using that, those judgmental terms, you're right, are like, they're always harmful, whether it's towards ourselves um, or others. And so, yeah, I think continuing to kind of dismantle and eradicate those is really, really essential. Uh, thank you for saying all of that. And um, especially when it comes to stigmas, I feel like, at least from my community, um, just a little background, I do come from a low-income community. I have an immigrant mother. Uh, so mental health has always been a conversation that has been largely ignored. Um, And I know coming to college, people are even like, you know, who relate to me in that situation say that their family members or just the people around them um, don't really support mental health or they don't think that it exists. And a large thing that I realized is, I think it has to do with just like economic status and also just like not being open to that or not being open to resources, because I know it took me a while to find um, something that could help me out purely because I didn't have the funds. And so um, I always suggest to, you know, people in my community or whenever I work at a nonprofit and people who come to me and ask, what do they do in a situation where they feel like their own family doesn't even listen to them? Um, I suggest trying to find like, you know, a friend or maybe a professor at school, because that's what I ended up doing, just finding a professor that I was really close to and having them listen to my story. Uh, and I don't think a lot of people realize that even if it's not someone who is professionally, you know, there is a point where you should get prof- professional help. But I think that there's a time before that where you can just reach out to someone, an adult, a friend, someone who does know about mental health um, and have them help you. So I feel like listening also is just a big step in breaking down these stigmas, just pretending you don't know anything, going to someone and just um, having them listen to you and hearing their feedback and implementing that in your life. Yes. And I think, you know, we are all a product of our learning history. Right. And and so absolutely we carry messages with us from, you know, our families, our cultures, our experiences. And so we we might all have different like thoughts or beliefs around what it means to to get support. And also we all have the experience of what it's like to not be, you know, validated or affirmed or have any support. So support can look different for for all of us and I think finding communities in which, you know, our experiences and identities are supported and validated uh, is really, really important. That's awesome. Thank you so much for saying that. But just kind of moving on, I was wondering if you had um, any suggestions about what steps to take when recognizing the signs of needed professional support 
whether it's with a friend or family member or just someone in your community? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that we um, want to make sure that we're able to do is, you know, get professional help when we need it. Um, And for many of us, all of us experience stress. Um, And all of us experience um, certain kind of emotions cross-culturally. And for some of us, like those, the level of distress or impairment of functioning might reach a point where it would actually be beneficial for us to connect with someone for professional support. Typically, it's when, you know, there's impacts in our daily life, our functioning, our like academic or social functioning, our social functioning, right? Maybe um, we're kind of isolating more or we're avoiding more things or or the opposite, you know, Um, any kind of changes in mood or behavior, physical symptoms, I think is is really important to just be mindful of. Um, Increasing use of of like substances or kind of like poor coping um, or kind of you know, issues related to kind of food, um, decreased eating or overeating, um, changes in sleep, all of those things I think are really important kind of signs to think about when we need additional support. Um, And then of course, you know, if anyone is having thoughts about suicide, thoughts about self-harm, those are always really important indicators too, that it would be important to connect to someone to keep them safe while they're experiencing distress. And when it comes to seeking professional help, is there any uh, primary kind of outlets you think we should pursue depending on perhaps the signs that we see? Um, For a friend or for an individual or for both? I guess for both. Okay. Um, So at USC, um, you know, I think always um, knowing that uh, you can contact the um, counseling center. So the 213-740-9355 is the um, line that actually turns into a crisis line after hours. Um, DPS is always there if it's like something really urgent. 911, um, the National Suicide Prevention Line, uh, the 988 number, um, is something that is, um, you know, always um, an option as well for like more acute concerns. Um, for kind of just like if you're like, you know what, this is something that I've noticed in a friend or I've, I've noticed myself, I think absolutely you can always contact the counseling center um, for a consultation for a friend. Um, campus support and intervention. Do you all know anything about their office yet? Not entirely. I know a little bit only because I've had friends that have reached out, but not too much because I personally haven't. Yeah. So there, there's, um, a resource called Trojans Care for Trojans. It's even an anonymous, um, reporting, or you can contact their office and speak to someone. Um, it's just a way to get additional support for students, um, and then students can also go on to my SHR and look at all of our different options. If it's, you know, non, non-acute, um, we have, um, a number of different providers with all types of different areas of 
expertise and specialties. We have um, skills groups, support groups, um, di all different types of uh, groups. And then we have workshops on stress, sleep, um, all types of different kind of options. And then we do outreaches for departments and student groups um, to continue to talk about and destigmatize mental health. So lots of different options. Um, you know, I think the other things that I've noticed um, in the past 10 years working with university students is a lot of students are actually connected with mental health support coming into college where previously that wasn't something. So, you know, many students have a, a trusted resource or mental health professional that they've actually been working with. So sometimes it's even re-engaging a familiar um, source of support. But um, our department is really always happy to support students. I can say that so honestly and sincerely um, because I'm one of the people doing it uh, every week. So truly, we it's really um, a privilege for us to, to support our community. And, and this is our community. So, you know, we always want to make sure that we're supporting students um, and getting them to the right types of support if they need it for themselves or for a friend. Thank you so much for stating all of those. I mean, obviously, I will be looking out for these signs and keeping all of the resources in mind. And hopefully, whoever listens to this can also apply this to their life. And you know, maybe if they have social media or anything, just make sure it's uh, the resources are staying a constant uh, conversation or just something that is open to the public. Right. And uh, before we wrap up our conversation here, Dr. Dexter, is there anything else you would like to share with us? Perhaps it's a quote that you really like, an idea that you try to live by, or perhaps some exercises you would uh, recommend to students for stress management? Well, um, if you would be willing, because we talked about this idea of kind of stigma and, and being compassionate to ourselves and compassionate to others, if you all are willing, maybe we could do like a two minute um, kind of uh, compassion exercise if you want as, as we enter into, um, you know, the last few minutes. Would you all be willing to do that? Yes, of course. Okay. Before we do that, um, I just want to say thank you so much. These types of conversations and, you know, uh, uh, and this these times that we can collaborate and have these honest conversations are really important, I think, for our community. Um, we still have space in our spring 2023 course. So if anyone wants to sign up, they're more than welcome to. And we have so many more initiatives from our department coming down the pipeline. So please know that you can always reach back out to us and, and partner with us for um, additional Honesty Hour podcasts in the future. Okay, so... Um, maybe we can just take a moment and um, we can wrap up with a brief exercise and you could either softly focus in front of you or gently close your eyes, whatever you feel comfortable with. And I'm going to lead us in offering just a few compassionate phrases to our USC community and then um, including ourselves in, in the offering of those compassionate phrases. And so if you like, you can follow along. If you decide that it's really 
not something that your body is responding to or you want to shift your focus of attention, feel free to do that too. I'll just offer you this exercise. And if you like, you can follow along. So maybe we'll start by just taking a deep breath. Hmm. Just settling into this moment. And as we settle into this moment, maybe bringing to mind a few people in the USC community that just bring a smile to your face. When you think of them, you just have a smile. And as you bring these maybe two or three individuals to mind, allowing yourself to extend a compassionate phrase to these individuals. May you have peace. May you experience connection. May you know your own strength. May you have peace. May you experience connection. May you know your own strength. And then perhaps even broadening who you're offering these phrases to. Maybe not only to a few individuals within our USC community, but maybe even holding our entire community in your mind and offering these phrases to our entire community. May you all have peace. May you experience connection. May you know your own strength. May you have peace. May you experience connection. May you know your own strength. And then reminding ourselves that as we are part of this community, including ourselves, in offering these phrases and allowing these phrases to land for ourselves as well. May we all experience peace. May we all experience connection. May we all know our own strength. May we all have peace. May we all experience connection. May we know our own strength. And then just allowing the words and images to fade away. Just noticing the impact of 
offering these things to your community, to yourself. And then when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes or shift your gaze back up to the screen. Wow, that was much needed. <laughs> I feel like my, my stressful week just kind of paused for a minute. Thank you so much for leading us in that. I'm going to be using that in my life every day now. <laughs> oh, thank you for being willing to try it. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It was very, very calming. And I could really feel through the air just spreading that love to all the people that you know we've conjured up. Yeah, well, you offered this with your space. So thank you for letting me even just fill a brief part of it and um, wishing you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you again for inviting me today. Thank you so much, Dr. Dexter. Yeah, thank you very much for coming to talk to us today and sharing your valuable insights. You know, I think something that I'm going to take away from this conversation is not only the exercise, it's put a smile on my face, I don't know why, um, but also just, the idea of, you know, connecting with other people, especially when it comes to mental health and being able to like learn how to build um, resilience and just take steps in order to slow down your process and maintain some sort of like whatever process necessary for you, but kind of individualizing it and finding your ways to manage your stress and Oh, thank you for that. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Dexter, for joining us today. And uh, to all our listeners, I guess we'll see you in uh, the next episode. Thanks, everybody. All right. Bye. It's not a game. It's a red stick.